if you're planning to go to the bar, it's the best thing to do. I'm Beatrice Collier. And I'm Georgina Wolfe. And this is the Pupillage Podcast, brought to you by Middle Temple and us, your hosts. George, here we are again in the Queen's Room, dodging chiming clocks and groups of visiting tourists. But this time, it's a beautiful summer's day and the Middle Temple Gardens are in full bloom. I'm not sure that we thought when we were furiously putting together Series 1 over Christmas that we'd be back for more. No, probably not. But it seems that you, our listeners, have found the podcast useful wherever you are. Some of you have been listening from Zambia, some from Texas, lots from the UK and especially York, which we are delighted about. And so we thought that in this second series of the Pupillage podcast, we could talk to some new guests about some of the other issues which people commonly encounter when considering a career at the bar. So, if you're thinking about a career as a lawyer and are wondering about solicitor versus barrister, or you're keen to come to the bar having already qualified as a solicitor or qualified in another jurisdiction, or if you have a passion for crime but are being told by all and sundry that it has no future and you must be mad, or if you wish you'd known more about different practice areas so you could really target your minis, then Series 2 is for you. We will also be looking at the under-discussed topic of third sixes. What are they, how to get one when you need one, and what can they do for you, as well as giving you a whole episode on mooting. At the other end of the spectrum, what if you're a lawyer or well on your way to becoming a lawyer, but have a sinking feeling that you're in the wrong job? Life after law, what does it look like? Finally, an episode that we're both particularly excited about, portentously entitled The Future. We ask our guests, to tell us what the bar is going to look like in 10, 20, 30 years' time. Will there still be pupillages? Will there still be barristers? In season one of the Pupillage podcast, we had an episode about advocacy, how to speak, how to debate, and how to moot. It left listeners hungry for more mooting, so this season we have an entire episode. Welcome to Mooting Demystified. On today's episode, we speak to three people who can really tell you how to win those mooting competitions. Middle Temple's Master of the Moots, Master Angus McCulloch, who gives us an exclusive peek inside the mind of a moot judge, and William Hawkes, a public speaking expert who reminds us of the importance of mastering the basics. Our first guest today is Karen Hunt, who, together with her mooting partner, was a recent winner of the Middle Temple Rosamond Smith Mooting Competition. She has kindly joined us today to give you, our listeners, the benefit of her experience and pass on some tips for improving your mooting skills. Welcome. Thank you. Perhaps we should start, really, by asking you to explain, for those of our listeners who don't know, what is a moot? Well, it's essentially you and your partner and another team pretending to be opposing counsel on a case. It will usually be an appeal case so that you're not dealing really heavily with facts, that the facts are essentially agreed and there's a point of law that's being appealed or usually two, one for you and your partner. Um, So you're just pretending to, to run a case, really. So you're making oral arguments before a judge? Yes, and... I think often you you have the oral argument bit, but beforehand you also have to produce a skeleton argument um, and exchange those before the moot. Okay, so there's an element of written advocacy as well. And so you'll be given a moot problem, which will be a set of... a broad set of facts that you stick to. And in fact, I I remember my first moot very well. And the people that we were mooting against had also never done a moot. And... unfortunately for them but thank goodness for us because I'm not sure that we'd have got through to the second round if it wasn't for this they had not understood that the idea was that you don't you don't mess around with the facts it's not about the facts it's about making legal submissions and they had created this entire fictionalized case theory that they were running that was that bore no resemblance to what was on the paper they had you know they had created new witnesses they had Oh, no. invented some amazing <laughs> facts that were going to help them to win and and they were both really good advocates they've probably gone on to successful careers I, I don't know I didn't keep up with them but they lost the moot because they had not understood in fact what a moot was about yeah I mean that's definitely a, a point that you have to keep to the facts and I think 
when you start your preparation, a really key thing is getting really familiar with those facts. Um, and obviously your, your opposition ran far away with them. But the one thing that me and my partner did find when you get the facts is that you can actually, there's a lot in them and you really have to interrogate them because there's sort of one level where you read them and okay, that's the story. But if you really get deep into them um, and sort of try and apply them to real life situations and imagine what was this person really thinking when they did that or why might that have happened? That is really helpful. And I think when you move to the research bit, always coming back to the facts and, and only researching what's really relevant to your facts also a big time saver yes you know and that's true in practice as well yeah yeah well because it's so easy when you know it, it I was really bad for sort of we'd get the broad topic and I'd want to know everything about it and make sure I understood all sort of corners and there just isn't time for that you really have to be quite focused especially because most people you know we my partner and I did the moot during um, our bar course so you have a lot of other stuff going on you have deadlines you want to be efficient how did you interrogate the facts Definitely speaking with my moving partner was a big part of our preparation. And I think a big reason of why we did well was that we really used each other and didn't just sort of take... Because in a moot, you'll often be split between junior and senior council and you get divided on what um, topic you'll be talking about, what legal argument. So it's quite easy to just then go off and prepare your own your own stuff but it's really helpful to ask your partner you know what do you think why did why did this happen is this reasonable what are the facts surrounding the case that make this reasonable so you know if you've got someone's date of birth figure out what age they are if they're a young person what's reasonable for them is going to be different think about you know um the context and all these different factors um that can sort of come into play then you mentioned that once you've undertaken that process, the next thing to do is to do your research. And in fact, you've, you've sort of said that it's important to use your interrogation of the facts to focus and direct your research. What are you researching? What, what are you doing when you're doing your research? Well, sometimes it will depend on on what you've been given. Sometimes the moot problem will have will refer to authorities in it, and I much prefer that because it gives you a really good starting point, particularly if it's a high up judgment. So if you get something from the Supreme Court, it's going to tell you the most recent law, but it's also going to do a really nice review of the preceding law. And um, so I would always start with the most recent authority first, um, because it just it helps you consolidate um, the law. And the other thing I would do that if a case was mentioned in the moot problem before I went and read the judgment, I would just look online for often um, barristers will have written a case summary if they were involved in the case. Um, and it will be really accessible because it will just be published online sort of for interest. And I found that was a really good way of knowing what was coming when you read a judgment because sometimes you can it can be very slow to read a judgment if you don't know where it's going. Um, and I always aimed with a judgment to read it through first once without sort of stopping or making any notes which is hard to do um but it's quite helpful because you can there's so many points at which in a judgment you can stop and think and it's good to get it all through and then the second time to really start looking at each issue making notes because one thing you have to be ready for is being able to talk about the judgment um, and not sort of write a legal essay on it, but sort of have absorbed really the principles as well as the facts. Um, so yeah, so I would always, if there's an authority mentioned, start with that authority. Um, and then also, once you've identified the area of law, maybe a practitioner's text or a textbook just to give you an overview. So if you're on sort of mistake in contract law, for example, you go to that section of Chitty um, and you just get an overview and you don't worry about making comprehensive notes because the point of the mood isn't to tell the judge, here's everything I know about mistake in contract law. It's to say, here's how the principles of mistake in contract law apply specifically to this case. And so not all of the theory is going to apply to your case. Um, and then once you've gotten the overview, once you've identified your authorities, then you start sort of making up the argument. So that's, that's how you deal with the nightmare situation that you're given a, a mooting problem that is an area of law you're totally unfamiliar yes. with and that doesn't give you any case law to start with. You work out what the broad area of law is, 
go to a textbook and see what you can find or perhaps Halsbury's Law or something like that. Exactly, yeah, and just try and narrow it down. And again, your partner can be really useful for that because my partner knew a lot of law that I didn't know. Can it be any area of law in your experience? Well, I think there's some moots that will be general. So the Rosamond Smith, I think it was five rounds and each round was a different area of law. We started out with, we started out with sort of Um, the criminal age of responsibility, which I knew nothing about. Um, And then there was various other ones. I think one involved the building of a ship, which was quite intimidating. (laughs) But once you got there, you you sort of understood what was going on. So the Rosamond Smith was a new area of law each time. But then you also have moots that are on one specific area of law. So an intellectual property moot, for example, environmental law is another one um so you can if you have something you're particularly passionate about you can try and find a moot specifically for that where did you go then in order to you mentioned practitioners texts did you use the in in library or where did you find the materials in which you were researching yeah myself and my partner were both members of middle um and so we would come here use the text um because we were doing the BPTC, we also had access to the online resources, um, which can be helpful if you're not in London or you don't want to physically come into the library. You can look online. Um, and online is also good because you can search terms. And when you're looking for cases, you can use Westlaw and sort of use keyword searches to try and get a relevant case, um, particularly because often if you remember that the moot problem hasn't sprung out of out of thin air, a barrister has sat down and written it probably with a particular case in mind so you may be able to find that case which best feeling when you find that case well I had a great moment where um, we knew the name of the moot setter and I found an article that he had written about the case that was mentioned in the in the moot and I just thought oh great that's me done yeah (laughs) perfect and the legal research aspect was I think the part that I found the most intimidating because I was sort of worried, am I missing something? Um, am I going to get this done? It, it is a bit daunting, but if you just break it down into chunks and really focus on, you know, what's the specific bit of my case that I need to know the law on and not worry too much about understanding sort of all the mechanics of tort law and all the principles, just focus on what you need to know um, and it will be okay. I think that's a hugely valuable piece of advice and perhaps one I ought to... Yeah. <laughs> take back to my practice anyway because sometimes if as you say you're encountering a completely new thing Mm. uh, some people may have the tendency to feel right I'm going to find out about this and then I'll definitely know whereas actually what you've described is um, a very particular approach and skill which is to have the confidence to identify what's relevant and go search for that alone which obviously is important if you've not got very much time in which to accomplish your research really good advice for pupillage as well yeah that's a good point yes what exactly are you doing when you're doing your research are you trying to make an argument at that point are you trying to find out about the law are you trying to do both do you write your skeleton argument whilst you're doing your research how did you approach it so I think um Unfortunately, you're juggling a lot of things. The first thing that you're trying to do is to to know what the law is in in terms of what area your your moot problem is about. But obviously, the second thing you're doing is getting ready to make an argument. I would never try and draft my skeleton whilst I was doing research because I think that's quite dangerous because it can close you off to different ways of thinking. Um, and particularly because when you're researching you have a tendency to look only for the authorities or the principles that will help your position. But it's really important when you're researching to figure out what's the other side going to say, what are they going to be coming up with? Because that helps your skeleton argument deal not just with what you need to say, but um, to try and ensure that it's robust enough to deal with what's coming from the other side and I think that can really set you apart um, when you have an understanding of the opposition side as well because 
you have to remember again with the moot, it's artificial. No one will have set a problem where one side is completely right and the other side is completely wrong. There's always going to be ground of contention um, and you have to sort of go into that rather than try and convince yourself that, no, we're 100% right. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because what happens if as you're preparing your legal research, you suddenly think, gosh, I think the law's really against me here. What, what do you do? Um, I think you... Firstly, you just be pleased that you've identified that because, you know, um, it would be much worse not to be prepared for that. And because when you do a moot, there tends to be a two-person team, sometimes it will be that one of you has the argument that isn't maybe going to succeed. But the test of the moot and the winner of the moot isn't the person who wins the case um, it's the person who makes the best argument and sometimes having a weaker legal position forces you again going back to the facts to really try and play those to your advantage if there's a case that seems really against you then what you have to do is take the facts of that case and the facts of your case and desperately try and figure out how to distinguish them and um, so don't feel despondent if you think the law is against you because that's not going to affect whether you win or lose. And actually it might give you more to get your teeth into than if you've just got a, an easy ride. Exactly, because I think it, you know, it, it puts you on the back foot and it means you have to work quite hard. So it can be good. It can it's, be a good thing. It's sort of more fun as well when you've got, yeah. when you've got the real challenge there. Yeah, certainly it, you, you can be a bit more creative, which I think is the fun of the mood um, and the, kind of the point of doing it, which is that you're not just... Um, dealing with the law in isolation that you're actually getting to apply it and try and make it work for, for you and that's you know that's the fun of a moot and it's why you should be doing it and also a big thing was learning when to let a point go to sort of listen to what the judge was saying in his tone and if he didn't agree with one of my submissions you have to say okay well that's fine I'll move on you have the point um, so the phrase I'm grateful became quite helpful to me <laughs> So you've done your legal research, you're ready to put pen to paper and it's time to draft your skeleton argument. What is a skeleton argument? So it's sort of what it says on the tin. Um, it is just the bare bones of your argument and what you're going to say. Um, you can get a lot of templates or examples online. I know for the Rosamond Smith moot, they would put the previous winner's skeleton online. So that was quite helpful to see not how sort of... Um, Lord Newburger wrote his skeleton arguments but how what you were expected to come up with that was really helpful um but it is it's just the bare bones of what you're going to say I sort of think of it as a roadmap for the judge you're going to be launching into oral argument and every so often you just anchor them with and this is our paragraph 16 of my skeleton argument and then you can move on so what sort of things do you put in a skeleton argument then when you say it's the it's the bare bones, are you, for example, explaining what happens in cases that you want to rely on, or might you just be setting out the principle that you want to rely on and then ref sort of putting the reference in a bracket? The way that I would usually do it would be that in terms of using cases and skeletons, there's usually a proposition that you're, you want to extract from the case. So you would say that proposition and then you refer to the authority um, to say, you know, and this is law. Um, but you, I wouldn't go into the facts in the skeleton argument. That's for oral argument. And for you to say, when you start going through your um, submissions, you say, is, is my lord familiar with the case? And he may say no. And that's when you have to be ready to, to give a summary of the facts. But in the skeleton, I would just limit it to the proposition that the authority stands for and the reference for the authority. And what you're trying to do then in your skeleton argument is argue that the law supports your resolution mm -hmm. of the point. Yeah, exactly. And to and, and there'll be an element of law and an element of facts. So you're sort of bringing that all together in, in your skeleton. And do you and your partner each do your own skeletons or do you produce a joint one? So we'd have two different legal points to be arguing um, and we would each prepare our own part of the skeleton for our own legal argument but then we would come together 
and create one skeleton argument. And a big thing also that we did was critique and edit each other's skeleton um, and proofread and really make sure that you get it down um, to as few words as you can. Um, and then the other thing that you have is obviously just sort of in terms of basics, you'll have a header which says the parties and what, what court you're in and you can find lots of examples of how that looks. Um, and also the rules of the moot will probably tell you what you should be doing. Um, and then also there'll be sort of an introduction just to say, you know, what's going on here, what's the issue? And then there'll be an overview of the facts as well. And it's important when doing the overview of the facts not to just repeat what's in the moot problem, not to repeat it out verbatim. It can be a bit tempting, but you it's already an opportunity for you to show that you really understand what's relevant in this case and what isn't. Um, and it's important to remember that the skeleton is advocacy and how it's written is going to influence the judge. And I think me and my partner found that we went into the oral argument feeling really confident if we had a good skeleton because you sort of felt like you were starting from a good point um, and you knew the judge wasn't cross with you about a typo um, or anything like that. Although I did, I think in the final, um, the judge pointed out to me that I'd spelled someone's name wrong sort of before I even launched into my argument. And that can, oh, be, no. that can be a bit off-putting, um, but it's good practice. So unnerving when that happens. In preparing for today, actually, Beatrice and I put together a sort of list of things that we thought might be helpful for people preparing their skeleton arguments. Um, so I'm interested to, to know whether or not you have anything to add to this or if these are things that you looked at and were helpful. So the civil procedure rules guidance on skeletons, there's a Queen's Bench guide. There's also other practice directions. So you can find all of that online. Um, helpful written resources, the bar school manuals are all really helpful. There's you know, entire sections about skeleton arguments. Andrew Goodman's effective written advocacy we thought was a, a good place to look. And then also the citation of authorities practice direction, which you can find on Westlaw or Lexis, um, and is probably more widely available online to know how to cite an authority if that's something, you know, if you're still doing, you just started the GDL and you don't yet know how to do that. Is there anything else that you found particularly helpful? Um. There was definitely a few things run at Middle Temple that had helped. I think there was sort of a, an introductory evening for the Rosamond Smith where they went through things like that. Um, and then I think the library also runs things about um, legal drafting and particularly citation of authorities is something I found really daunting. Having done a law undergrad, I still wasn't totally sure all the time of, okay, neutral and then a report, but you know, which report it comes first. And yeah. so, so it can be helpful. And I think, you know, the libraries are actually a really underused resource in terms of you can just go to the library and ask someone a question. You know, we've been talking about practitioner texts. You might be thinking, what is that? Because you're not a practitioner yet. So you might not have used one. And if you go to the library and you say, oh, I've got a moot problem on breach of contract, you know, what's the first place I should be looking? Then they'll, they'll help you find the practitioner text and they can help you navigate the resources as well because legal research is, is difficult. So if you, can, if you can go to one of the talks about that, it's really helpful. That's great advice. So you talked about citing authorities. How many authorities do you, do you tend to cite in a moot? Um, I think it, it does vary and look at the moot rules because I think for my moot there was a limit um, to three authorities each um, so check the rules if there's no limit I think a guide of sort of one to four um, probably ideally three I guess but it will just really vary but I think the big warning is not to heap a whole load of authorities in there which I've definitely in the past been tempted to do because the problem is that it's fine and it's well and good in your skeleton argument to have all those authorities looking really impressive. But then you get to oral submissions and the judge says, OK, well, can you can you tell me what happened in that case? Um, and you, you need to really have a really good grip on every authority you cite. So you might be creating quite a heavy workload if you push loads of authorities in there and usually there'll be a leading authority on the point that you're trying to make and then maybe some secondary ones um, and then maybe one that is is not particularly authoritative but has really similar facts so you can show the judge well they've already thought about this kind of case and here's what um you know the high court said or 
obviously the high court is quite authoritative (laughs) that's really good that's really good advice I devised a technique when I started moving that I still use in practice which Mm. is that I get a large post-it note and stick it to the front page of an authority with a sort of summary of the facts just an aid memoir for me so if it's a case I know really well I might just be able to say police assault scooter or something like that you know some some words that remind me um and if it's more complicated i'll set out all of the facts and what the key proposition of law is and that means that anytime i need to turn up a case i immediately have it there and i can start with that introduction while i'm finding my feet and um perhaps feeling a bit nervous as i'm you know might have been taken off my stride by the judge yeah that sounds like the perfect thing to do really to because getting something down to say three sentences is really a test to you of of whether you know it and and whether you're going to be able to say it I had a friend in my undergrad who I think it was for contract where you just have so many cases and different factual scenarios to remember would draw cartoons of each case um, and and just stick them on his wall and remember them that way. So everyone has a different way of trying to remember what things are all about. Um, But yours sounds good. I might steal that. (laughs) So how how do you go about preparing your speaking notes? You've done your skeleton argument, you've sent it off and you've now got to sit down and prepare what you're going to say. How do you do that? Um, Everyone's really different. And I think a big thing for mooting and a good opportunity that meeting presents is to figure out how speaking notes will work for you I think the one thing I'd really warn people against and it can be really tempting when you're doing your first moot and you're not confident on your feet people will write all of their submissions out Um, and while that can make you feel really comfortable it can backfire when you get an intervention and you're suddenly shaken from your speech and it's really difficult for you to respond but it's also really difficult for you to get back to where you need to be because it will sound quite artificial if you just go straight back into reading out Um, and particularly as you progress the moots will get more interventionist and you'll really need to be quite flexible so I think whatever way you do it whether you do it sort of bullet points or key words The thing is, visually, if you can have each submission sort of in and of itself and know, okay, here's what I need to say on that and plan out for each submission um, so that you can flexibly go between one or the other, I think that's helpful. Um, I mean, my, my moot partner actually didn't write speaking notes as such. He would annotate his skeleton argument and do it that way. Um, whereas I would be more of sort of I would flesh out keywords and try and figure out where I was going. And sometimes you might want to prepare a few sentences, particularly it can be helpful to prepare your opening and your closing because then you'll always come back to something that you're comfortable with or you might want to prepare sort of your responses to intervention. And I think that's another thing as well, not just having your speaking notes, but getting your partner to listen to your speech and say, oh, I think I'd ask this question and then preparing to answer that question. I think that's really helpful. Great idea. That's really good. You really develop as an advocate um, you know, in a way that you can practice all you want in your bedroom. It's just not the same as being there, having a judge, other people watching you. You can't emulate that. So it's a really great addition to sort of your advocacy classes and the bar course. Um, it's just such unique experience. And also, you know, you're not just seeing you and your partner, you're seeing lots of other people and how do they do it? And then the judge will be a barrister or perhaps even a real judge. And very often, you know, they give you really detailed feedback. They really want to help you progress to the next level. Um, and, and that's really invaluable as well, the feedback that you get. You mentioned practicing in your bedroom. Did you practice in your bedroom? (laughs) Yes, um, massively. I would set up the ironing board as my podium um, and I would... Great tip, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's good. Um, Because actually the, the thing I really hated was sometimes you'd have have a round where there was no podium per se you had to put your papers on a table and that's when the visual element of your speaking notes can really be helpful because you're sort of looking down and trying to see you know what's written on the page but yes no I would usually what I would do I would practice myself a few times I would probably subject my my boyfriend to it a few times (laughs) and then the day of the moot my partner and I would get together in a room um in our in our uh, in BPP and we would 
maybe like twice each um, do our speech for one another and intervene on one another. Um, and that was a really good way just to be really ready to go into it that evening um, because you kind of need a dry run as well, you know, so it's good to do it just before you, you do the moot as well, to have it all in your head. What are the most useful stock phrases that you have found or developed over your mooting career? At the end, we always used to say, um, unless you have any further questions, those are my submissions. I used to always get it the wrong way around, though, and say, those are my submissions. Oh, unless you have any further questions. Um, so, so that was always helpful. At the beginning as well, w- would my Lord like an overview of the facts? Um, it, has my Lord had an opportunity to read my skeleton argument? Um, and I, I realise I'm saying my Lord there, but obviously how you address the judge will depend on what court you're in. So your moot information will tell you what court. And then there's an online resource that sort of, what do I call a judge? And it will tell you. Um, and you can always double check with with a barrister or, or someone at your, your bar course school. Um, so it is good to, to know what to call the judge. <laughs> Very good advice. Earlier, you mentioned that it's an important skill to develop as a mooter to appreciate when it's time to stop making a point that doesn't seem to be finding favour with your tribunal. So how do you recognise when that moment has been reached? The judge will often help you realise that either with (laughs) um, sometimes it's just a, a kind of a look that they're giving you very often if they stop writing that's a good sign that they no longer think what you're saying is worth writing down um and then usually you'll get an intervention and the intervention might press you and you respond and if they kind of say the same point again then they're basically saying look i'm not i'm not on side with you um and you should move on and i think it's a really important part of preparing as well to know your strong points and know your weak points and know where to focus your time. Sometimes it's better to spend a lot of time on oral argument on your strong points because you might have to accept that your weak points are ultimately always going to be weak. Um, And if you're not going to convince the judge on it, don't waste his time. Um, Equally, there'll be some very self-evident matters that the judge won't want to hear your submissions on. And he might say, I have the point. Or he might say, look, I've read your skeleton argument. I'm with you on paragraphs one to five. Can we go to your second submission about this? Um, So again, that's where the flexibility comes in. An intervention is really an opportunity for you to show how you can think on your feet and how you can respond. So you've done all your preparation. You've had um, a trial in your bedroom with your ironing <laughs> yes. board and it's the day of the moot. How do you how do you dress? When do you turn up? What do you do? Uh, so dress-wise... Um, the I think on the bar course you get sort of rules about what to dress for your advocacy. You can always Google it, but I mean the main thing is a dark suit, nothing exciting. Sadly, it's you just have to wear really boring clothes. Um, so yeah, a dark suit for guys, for girls again a dark suit, skirt or trousers. Don't wear really high shoes, um, mostly because you just will be nervous and might fall over. Do that visit to court and see how people are dressed. That will be helpful. I think for girls as well, it is better to wear tights um, rather than go bare-legged. But I kind of wouldn't want to Im- impose that on anyone if they felt... George definitely agrees with me. <laughs> I do, I do. I always feel a little little awkward if I arrive in, in chambers with my bare legs. <laughs> yeah, um, it kind of it is just one of those things and it may change, but for a mute, it's kind of better to err on the side of caution. And the the general gist is that, you know, your argument is speaking for you and you should be as sort of plain as possible so that it's not distracting to the judge. Um, And so that's where also on the day of the mood, things like not moving your hands, um, standing still, sounds so obvious, but really can be quite unnatural um, and stuff I really struggled with. So being aware of what your sort of little ticks are and that's where the practice comes in because your partner will say why are you moving your hand why are you fiddling with your ring um so be prepared for that um and then yeah the other thing i think on the day of the moves have your run through arrive in plenty of time ask them where you're supposed to sit um and just sort of get get ready thank you very much indeed karen hunt for coming to talk to us thank you for having me thank you for every moot (laughs) 
I, I would have my speaking notes and at the top of them would be written slow down in capital letters and hands in capital letters because I was bad for, you can see I'm doing it now, I'm, you, you, you listeners can't see, but I'm a big hand mover, uh, so I had to rein that in. You sort of look to your partner when you sit down and you're like, was that all right? I think a moot can best be thought of as a legal debate. Angus McCulloch QC studied zoology at university, which was obviously the perfect preparation for a career in the courtroom. He was called to the bar by Middle Temple in 1990 and took silk in 2010, whilst also being an accomplished lepidopterist. He is in chambers at One Crown Office Row and has a practice which covers public law, clinical negligence, environmental regulatory and disciplinary law. He has also acted as a special advocate in some of the most high-profile national security cases. Importantly, for our purposes on this episode, he is currently Middle Temple's Master of the Moots. Welcome to the Pupilage podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can I ask you first, can you remember your own first moot? I can. Uh, My first one, I was apprehensive, as I think nearly every first-time mooter is. Um, apprehensive may understate it. I think I was probably terrified. Yes. Um, but I grasped the nettle, took the plunge, and uh, uh, got through it. I can't. I don't think I progressed very far in the competition. I have to confess. I might have got through the first round with my partner, but I don't think we got beyond the second round. But I think one of the messages that I um, would take from my experience, which was some time ago now is have a go. Uh, even if you don't get very far in the competition, you're likely to get something out of it. It's, it's going to be a positive experience, I would hope. So um, don't be put off by your nerves. Uh, have a go. What do you need to do as Master of the Moots? Well, I'm uh, co-Master of the Moots. There are two of us. Uh, Master Kate Thurlwall, Lady Justice Thurlwall, is my uh, fellow Master of the Moots. And my responsibility is the, the running of the competition uh, 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 in terms of organising moot problems. I collar people to set moot problems and dealing with any queries or disputes that arise, which thankfully are quite rare. But the real hard work is done by Jess Maisie in the office uh, and she does the day-to-day administration of it. And Master Thurwell's main role is to get the judges, in particular for the semi-finals and the finals, which happen in hall with dinner following. And they're quite big events, but one of the uh, things that I would emphasise is that the early rounds are very informal. Uh, and so although the first moot you may have seen may have been in hall with a um, cast of hundreds. Um, It's not like that for your first several moots. It's much more informal. It's in a small room. Um, There's there's no one uh, watching other than your opponents and uh, the moot judge and a timekeeper. So you can make your mistakes without feeling uh, a fear of embarrassment. We all make mistakes. I certainly made plenty in my first moot or two. And uh, it's a a positive experience because although you may feel you've had a tough time during the moot, once the moot is over and the judge is giving feedback, uh, uh, I think it's really useful, the, uh, the, the, the feedback and the constructive criticism that you get in a small, intimate, informal environment, not the uh, rather uh, awe-striking experience of doing it in hall. That will await you if you get through (laughs) four or five rounds uh, and you'll be ready for it by the time you get there. Oh, thank you. Thank you for making that clear because you're right, it is an absolutely terrifying prospect. One of the things we emphasise to the judges in the early rounds is that the mooters may be inexperienced uh, uh, and the judges will tend to um, be less interventionist and less challenging in those early rounds and will use their discretion as to to the approach they take. But also it's really a a, a game of two halves, as it were. There's the formal part of the proceedings where the argument is going on um, and each party giving their speeches... um, 
uh, and then the judge will give a short judgment usually on the law and will declare the winning team but then the formality um, uh, such as it is falls away and you get the judge taking the metaphorical wig off and uh, giving the, the tips, the advice, the praise, the suggestions for improvement uh, in a completely different atmosphere. Um, they're no longer playing the role of the judge, which um, uh, uh, will involve them challenging the argument, but they're, they're offering advice uh, uh, in, in an informal and supportive way. What sort of things are mooters being judged on then? So what makes you into a mooting winner? Well, I can give you a, um, the insider's view as to this because I've got with me the moot judging guidelines. Now, we don't publish these. We give them to the judges um, as a suggestion as to the sorts of things that they uh, will be looking for. The suggestions that we make um, are that it's, uh, it is worth assessing by three different criteria. The quality of the written argument, the quality of the oral argument, and the general presence and presentation, um, which can incorporate quite a number of factors, how the mooter stands, presents, delivers, um, and how the mooter responds to interventions from the judge. So those are the the elements that uh, the judges are suggested to be looking for. And I think from experience, most judges adopt some sort of um, structured assessment, sometimes doing a formal score under each heading and sometimes a, a, a more overall uh, comprehensive assessment and a, and a less structured one. But th those are the aspects that the judge will be looking for, I think you can be confident of. So a world exclusive there, <laughs> the insider track on judging. Um, when you've been judging moots, are there things that have particularly impressed you that you've seen? Looking at that in, the, in two parts, firstly, the written argument and then the oral argument. In the written argument, what one tends to be looking for is structure and clarity so one wants to see an argument laid out in a way that is easy to understand, uh, easy to understand the structure of, and easy to understand the points that are being made within it. So avoiding long paragraphs, uh, reducing points to um, short labels is often helpful, helps the judge then to categorise them and place them uh, uh, in the overall structure in her or his mind. Um, and brevity is undoubtedly an advantage. And very similar considerations apply in relation to the oral argument. Uh, it is, again, all about structure and clarity, uh, uh, and uh, brevity and crispness go with that. There's a fair amount that goes with that um, in terms of adopting the formalities and there's a lot of good guidance on the Middle Temple website uh, as to uh, how to go about um, the presentation of your oral submissions avoiding saying things like I think when it should be I submit because as a judge may be quick to point out to you if you say well I think this case is wrong because he's not interested in your opinion he is interested in your submission on behalf of your client. And, uh, uh, but those are things that are drummed into any law student. It's difficult to do them um, and remember to do them uh, when you're starting out. And we've all got it wrong in our time. Um, but th those are additional things to bear in mind, um, how to address the court um, and how to deal with interventions uh, from the court, which uh, uh, I think the, the number one rule is answer the question. Yes. So, um, well, well, that's... Easy that's, said that's, than done. Yes, yeah. I was going to say, I think it's worth spending a little bit of time on that because I think people sometimes don't realise that they're not answering the question. 
But you're going to be asked a question because that's what's troubling the moot judge and probably because it concerns a difficult aspect of your case. So you really have to have got your answer and be prepared to to, to deal with the question head on, don't you? Because otherwise you it, do. you're, not, you're not being helpful at all to the judge who has to make the decision. And obviously you don't know what the judge is going to ask, but quite a good indication is from your opponent's skeleton argument. So if you look carefully at the points they've made and anticipate them being put to you by the judge, that's likely to leave you with a better chance of being prepared to meet the judge's interventions when they come. Because from the judge's point of view, the judge will be wanting to know your answer to the other side's points. Uh, and if the other side have done a good job in structuring uh, their argument, she or he will have been able to extract from those the key points uh, and be quite likely to be testing you with those to see what your answer is. So although you may feel you've no idea what's coming, um, it's a reasonable chance that it will be points that emerge from the other side's skeleton argument. Something related to this I'd like to ask you about, which is um, some mooters tell us that they're not quite sure at what point to abandon a submission, <clears throat> or not abandon it, but to move on from a submission if they feel it's getting no traction with the judge. Because um, I think people feel that it, you, can't, you can't give up immediately. But on the other hand, um, it's irritating potentially for a judge to be repeatedly told the same submission that they're not showing much interest in. Have you any advice for our listeners as to how to make that judgment call? I think the first thing I'd say is defend your corner. The judge is there to test your argument. And uh, so don't back down in the face of judicial challenge. Uh, you're there to argue your point uh, and give an answer as best you can to the the question from the judge but having given your answer um, in an ideal world the judge moves on and doesn't press you further um, but if the judge is pressing you further it means probably that you haven't quite answered the point or haven't answered it to her satisfaction. Um, so have another go, but if you find you're just repeating yourself, there's really no point in going on. Uh, and you may want to say something like, I, I fear anything further I say in response to your question would be repetition. So perhaps I'll move on to my next point. Um, so I think two goes is, is a good reasonable. rule of thumb. Is a good rule of thumb but avoid repeating yourself more than that. That's really good advice. Are there any other tactics or strategies that you have picked up from your own practice that you think would be helpful for those starting their mooting careers? Nearly everything that one picks up in practice is applicable to mooting. Preparation is absolutely fundamental. It's fundamental to practice, as you both know, uh, and it's fundamental to mooting. The better prepared you are, the more likely you are to give a good account of yourself, whether it's in a moot or in court. So being absolutely on top of the facts of the case is the starting point. You should know them uh, back to front and upside down and the right way up. Often it helps to have prepared a chronology to do that, uh, and you might want to think about including the chronology in your skeleton argument because it can help the judge when he comes to consider the, um, the, the case and absorb the facts. And similarly with the law, it's all about preparation. Do your legal research, um, work out what the cases that really support the points that you want to make are, which bits of them you want to focus on, uh, be very aware of the bits that cause you difficulty and don't really support your argument or are likely to require some explanation or uh, distinguishing. Um, 
But preparation, preparation, preparation. Um, it will all go a lot better if you're well prepared. And, and we know that from practice. <laughs> and it's true in mooting as well. It certainly is. We've talked a lot on this episode about the Rosamond Smith mooting competition in Middle Temple. There are obviously comparable competitions across the other inns, but there are all sorts of other mooting competitions out there. The Times, I think, runs one along with the Barristers' Chambers. Lots of Barristers' Chambers run them and law schools throughout the country run them. So there are lots of mooting opportunities for anyone who is interested in trying it. There are plenty of opportunities. AKA no excuse. <laughs> yes. Master McCulloch, thank you very much indeed for talking to us on the Pupilish podcast. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having thank me. You. Thank you. As a lepidopterist, how should one deal with moths in one's cupboards? Well, <laughs> most of lepidoptery is not... Uh, moths that are going to eat your clothes. There are only two species in the United Kingdom that cause any Well, what episode on mooting would be complete without some pearls of wisdom from a metal conservator? William Hawkes, thank you for coming on the Pupillage podcast. Can you start off by baffling our listeners and telling them about your day job? Well, my day job is principally involved with the preservation of cultural heritage. I take historic objects, uh, which are principally made of metal, because my speciality is metal, and I stop the clock and make things stay as, as they are so that they can be researched, studied, or just looked at in museums. Now, while I'd like to ask you 25 more questions about that, you have more than one string to your bow because you're also an expert in public speaking. And we have invited you to come on this episode of the podcast to give us some tips about how to impress with courtroom advocacy. Uh, This all started when I was about nine years old. And in class, we were asked to do a two and a half minute speech on our favourite book. And I started speaking. 12 or 13 minutes later, the teacher told me to sit down. (laughs) So I think um, that's really where it all stemmed from. How is courtroom advocacy different from traditional public speaking then? Well, public speaking in itself encompasses a lot of different disciplines and a lot of different purposes. For example, in an oratory, you are trying to evoke emotions. In a lecture, you are simply trying to convey information. In debating or mooting, you're trying to convince somebody. And of course, that does go into courtroom advocacy. You have to convince a jury or you have to convince a judge. That involves specific skill sets, which you may or may not have to use in in other forms of, of public speaking. I think being a courtroom advocate is a lot about pulling on heartstrings, it's a lot about evoking emotions, creating word pictures, what we call word pictures, which is an image in the juror's mind's eye where they can see what happened. They can see the disgraceful behaviour of one or more people, where they can see that there has been a huge human loss. And I think the ability to evoke these emotions in court without going overboard, of course, is very, very important. And I think it's central to good courtroom advocacy. What advice then do you have for our listeners who are no doubt thinking, yes, 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 exactly. That's exactly what I want to do. What can they do to improve their own advocacy? Well, my personal advice on any piece of public speaking is that public speaking starts from the ground up. The most important piece of equipment a public speaker can buy is a comfortable pair of shoes. (laughs) Now that sounds ridiculous, it sounds absolutely ridiculous, I know. But if you're comfortable, you can concentrate on what you're doing. You can concentrate on making the points that you need to make. You can concentrate on your audience because their feedback, their body language, their eye contact will make a big difference to the way you deliver your piece of of public speaking. From there, I think preparation is absolutely key. What advice do you have then, apart from preparation, for the person who's mooting for the first time, what advice can you give them about how to present their case? I think standing up, relaxing, breathing... Allow your shoulders to just drop and relax. 
and address the judge in a way that is correct but comfortable. I think from there, a clear, audible, uh, strong voice and keep the pace moderate. There's always a temptation when you stand up in public speaking, particularly when you see your audience, to speed up ridiculously. And all yeah. of a sudden, a 10-minute speech is compressed into six minutes and the judge will have heard none of it. Absolutely none of it. So it's always worthwhile being mindful of the pace at which you speak. And you're probably always speaking much more quickly than you think you're speaking anyway. <laughs> very much so, very much so. Subconsciously, there's always, particularly with things like public speaking, because it is the one thing that terrifies 90% of the population, <laughs> there's always a, a temptation to speed up purely because you want to get it over and done with and get sat back down again. But in fact, it's the worst thing you can do. So being mindful of that pace is, is critical. You touched on volume. And of course, if you're mooting, you might start at the preliminary stages of a mooting competition in a relatively small room where you're just sitting across a table from the judge. But by the time you get to the final stages, you might find that you're mooting in hall after dinner. You might be mooting in the Supreme Court. There are all sorts of rather vast and intimidating locations. Do you have any advice about how to moderate your volume and tone for those sorts of rooms? Yes, the technique that I use is called the three-foot technique. And the way I work is I project my voice as if to be speaking to somebody who is three feet behind the person that I'm really addressing. So if you want to fill a room, uh, for example, this room, I would speak to somebody who was three feet outside this room. Behind the Queen Mother. Correct. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, so that, that, that would work for this room. Similarly in hall, projecting your voice to someone who was three feet further than the last person in the audience, that then will fill the room in terms of, of volume. That is a difficult thing to do because at first, when you're in somewhere like Middle Temple Hall, you feel as though you're shouting. But in fact, you're not. If you're projecting properly, you don't have to shout. You've mentioned the skill set of the strong public speaker. Is it something that you think comes naturally to people or do you think you can learn it? I, when I'm coaching public speaking, I, I always talk about the speaker's toolbox. And the speaker's toolbox should be always open. For the simple reason that you should always be accumulating skills and ideas and techniques. You should always be trying things out and things that work go in your speaker's toolbox. Things that don't, forget it. So the speaker's toolbox and building that up I think is absolutely essential. There are certain things that are absolute bread and butter. For example, the template. In a lot of speeches, you start with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that template should be absolutely set in stone. Then you can build up your speech. You can plug in elements, but that template remains the foundation. So I think building on public speaking skills, is a, it's, it's a never-ending process. So... Your skill set and your speaker's toolbox should be ever-expanding. One thing we talked about in season one of the Pupillage podcast in the context of particularly of, of Pupillage interviews were nerves. And I have no doubt that our audience still suffering from nerves. I know that many practitioners, myself included, still get nervous before a case. What advice do you have for those who are feeling nervous? Well, first and foremost, I think something to realise is that if you don't feel nerves, then there's something wrong. Nerves are perfectly healthy, but they're also incredibly useful because they focus your mind on what you have to do. So the first thing you need to do when you stand up is breathe. Get yourself comfortable. And that includes not only the, the clothes and the shoes that you're wearing, but things like your posture. Get your posture set right. Get yourself into a, a neutral, sustainable posture. So then breathe. Look at your audience. Just have a look at them. 
and realise that they are people too. They are there to listen. And from there, start your speech strong and audibly and projecting your voice as you know you can and those nerves will soon evaporate. They always do. Thank you very much indeed for coming to speak to the Pupilage podcast. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for asking me. When you're in a situation where somebody's liberty isn't riding on your performance, there's no harm in trying things out. Thank you for listening to the Pupilage podcast with us, Beatrice Collier and Georgina Wolfe, brought to you by Middle Temple. Production support and music by Alex Dopirala. Please check out the show notes for more on our guests, links to sources of information and a glossary of terms used in each episode. A really big thing for me was all the formality and the slightly bizarre nature of a mood.